Every day for decades, U.S. Postal Service letter carriers deliver mail to millions of homes in every kind of weather. Then, in 2016, in June, the U.S. experienced a particularly severe heat wave. In Benton, Arkansas, a letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service was delivering mail on his route. It was hot that day, and he began to feel sick. His head began spinning, and then he began to stumble along his route and started vomiting. He staggered back to his van and collapsed. A neighbor found him sometime later and called 911, and he was sent to a hospital. Far away, near the Houston Astrodome, another letter carrier was hospitalized that same week after he suffered a heat-related illness in the same heat wave. He was checked into a hospital for two nights and was unable to return to work for nine days. That same summer, around the nation, several other letter carriers also suffered from recordable heat stress cases in San Antonio, Des Moines, Martinsburg, West Virginia, and OSHA conducted inspections and issued citations under the general duty clause. By today, almost seven years later, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission has conducted hearings, reviewed a mountain of evidence, and issued an opinion. This opinion will have an effect on employers across the nation as they deal with one of the most ubiquitous environmental factors in the workplace, heat. I'm Manish Rath, and this will be the topic of our discussion today, March 22nd, 2023, on the OSHA 33rd. friends, and welcome to the OSHA 3030, a webinar and podcast covering updates on OSHA law every 30 days. We've been doing this program for almost 10 years, and there are over 100 episodes on our website, so please check them out. Every month, we republish this webinar as a, as a podcast and on YouTube, so just search on either OSHA 3030 or Monish Rath, and you'll find them. This program is complimentary to clients and friends of Keller and Heckman. And the only thing we ask in return is when you receive an email inviting you to the next month's program to please forward it on to at least three colleagues in your office of general counsel or your safety and health professionals at your organization. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. And I'm grateful because today I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson, one of the stars of our OSHA law practice here at Keller and Heckman. Taylor, welcome. And thank you for joining us on the OSHA 3030. Well, thanks for having me as always, Manish. Well, we've got an important topic today. Why don't we get into what we're going to talk about, something that affects everyone, heat. So let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Right. So for today's agenda, we're going to start with the factual background of the case that we're going to be covering. Uh, this is Secretary of Labor versus the United States Postal Service. Then we'll go into the elements of the general duty clause, uh, which is what the Postal Service was cited under uh, in this case. Um, we'll go through the ALJ's decision, and then, importantly, we'll unpack the Review Commission's decision. We'll then move to an update on the federal heat stress standard, um, and as well as a national emphasis, emphasis program. Um, so, so two you know elements there that we wanted to to bring to everyone's attention. And then, as always, we'll wrap up with what employers should do, some practical takeaway action items um, for you to bring back to your workplace. That's right. And this uh, this program is being pre-recorded, so we 
usually end with a live session for the webinar participants only, uh, where they ask questions, pre-submit questions or ask them live in the chat function. And it's just a great informal off the record session. We're not doing that today because we're pre-recording it on Monday, uh, March 20th for the Wednesday, March 22nd episode of the Ocean 3030. So we'll skip that section today, get into the facts. Uh, the, the facts of this case really emanate from, from five different cases. In the summer of 2016, several mail carriers in cities around the nation experienced symptoms of heat illness, such as headaches, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, muscle cramps, and, and several of them collapsed on their routes. So severe cases of, of heat stress. That's right. And the, the cities, um, the five cities listed are, are San Antonio, Texas, uh, Benton, Arkansas, Houston, Texas, uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Des Moines, Iowa. Um, you know, all five cities, you know, as we mentioned, you know, these these all occurred in one summer of 2016. I, I believe, Anish, actually, that it was, was the hottest year on record, um, you know, at the time. Um, so we sort of saw this, you know, happening all across the country. At the time, it was the hottest year on record. That's right. It's tied now with uh, the year 2020. But in June, which was very early for a heat wave, there was uh, we experienced severe temperatures all across the country. In Palm Springs, uh, California, it hit 122 degrees. In Tucson, it hit, hit 120 degrees, 126 in Death Valley, uh, and it goes on and on. And and these cases, San Antonio, Benton, Arkansas, Houston, Texas, are certainly in the Sun Belt to an extent, but you can't necessarily say that about Des Moines or Martinsburg. West Virginia, where they were also experiencing severe heat waves. So an exceptional circumstance to be sure, but but that really forms the basis of one of the questions the administrative law judge had to address is how severe uh, would the heat have to be to qualify as excessive heat under OSHA's general duty clause? We'll talk about that. Uh, so, so what happened was when these five incidents happened, several of them were sent to hospital and that triggers a self-reporting duty for the employer, something employers need to remember and to train their facility managers about is that when there's a hospitalization requiring care in an overnight stay, that that's something you have to self-report to your to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And so that's what happened. And, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration conducted investigations, ultimately issuing citations under the general duty clause. The specific allegation um, was that the Postal Service allegedly exposed workers to the hazard of excessive heat uh, while walking and hand delivering mail in an outdoor environment. Um, excessive heat becomes this very important term uh, in, in the cases as we move forward. And then the penalties for the alleged violations ranging from 124000 uh, down to 68000 a total across the five cases, um, you know, over half a million dollars in penalties here. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. So, so the penalties are significant, but again, uh, as with so many cases that we've covered, you and I, Taylor, in the OSHA 3030, it's really the abatement that would have to be implemented by an employer right. that that can sometimes uh, far outsize the uh, the cost of the abatement would far outsize the, the cost of the penalties themselves. And I think that's clearly what would happen here. Uh, so OSHA proposed specific abatements and they required that they be implemented enterprise-wide. OSHA and the United States Postal Service engaged in negotiations to try and come up with a solution that might be amenable to all. Those negotiations failed, and the Postal Service contested the citations. Uh, and that that began the contest that went to the administrative law judge and ultimately then to the review commission for review. 
That's right. So as we mentioned, uh, the secretary issued five citations um, to the Postal Service, all under the general duty clause. Um, we wanted to point out here that you know OSHA plans to initiate a, a rulemaking process for, for a federal heat stress standard, but that did not exist yet at the time. Um, and yeah. so that's that's why these came under the general duty clause. That's a great, great point, Taylor. And you know, when you issue a, as, as we've covered again many times in, in prior uh, episodes of the OSHA 3030, when you issue a citation under the general duty clause, the agency has a slightly higher burden than when it issues a citation under a specific standard, alleging a violation of a specific standard. With the general duty clause, there's four prima facie elements that it has to establish, and it has to establish all four of them, that there was a hazard that was recognized, that employees were uh, were, were exposed to that hazard. There has to be exposure without which there isn't a general duty clause violation. Taylor? That's right. And then the next being um, that the hazard caused harm and that the hazard could be abated. And so all, all four of these really um, were, you know, gone through in great detail by the review commission right. in this case. Now, now there's nuance to all of them. When you talk about the idea that the hazard was a recognized hazard, it could have been recognized by the employer or could have been generally recognized by the industry. Uh, the idea of causing harm, it could have been reasonably uh, foreseeable that it could cause harm. We're talking about a fatality or a severe illness. Uh, and so so there's there's nuances to all these, but we wanted to cover the the basics of the general duty clause uh, just to make sure everyone is caught up with that principle so that you understand the debate that takes place both before the administrative law judge in extensive hearings as well as before the review commission. Okay, so then the case goes to the administrative law judge. He conducts uh, a hearing and examines massive amounts of evidentiary uh, presentation, including many expert witnesses testifying on both sides. That's right. Eventually issues five separate decisions. Um, the, the key point here being that all, all five citations were vacated by the ALJ uh, on the basis that OSHA presented insufficient evidence as to how, how to define uh, the amount of heat exposure that qualifies as a recognized hazard. And this is really one of the points that the Review Commission goes into great detail on. OSHA's expert opinions, um, according to the ALJ, uh, were based almost solely on this National Weather Service chart uh, that, in the ALJ's opinion, uh, did not have a scientific basis. That's gone through, like I said, in great detail uh, by the Review Commission. Yeah, it's a good point, Taylor. I mean, when you look at the National Weather Service uh, chart, it, it looks like it gives clarity. But the question that the, the parties examined before the administrative law judge is what was the evidence that the National Weather Service used to develop the the thresholds or the, the sort of stoichiometric uh, uh, boundaries between one level of a heat index and another, and where it described a red zone of extreme danger, where it described what was the threshold and why, what evidence supported the threshold for the orange zone of danger, uh, et cetera, extreme caution and caution. And and so so the administrative law judge found that OSHA had presented very poor evidence uh, to support the National Weather Service's uh, chart, heat index chart. And for a while, this case stood for the proposition that the National Weather Service chart should not be used to determine either by the agency when issuing general duty clause citations or by employers when promulgating their own internal heat stress management plans and should not be used as uh, as sort of the sole uh, method by which these kind of uh, external forces are uh, measured upon an employer, employee or a worker. Uh, so I think that that's the one of the important takeaways is that the National Weather Service chart 
was was maybe discredited or at least found to be based on insufficient evidence and then then the the uh review commission reviewed this case again more recently right um, and that and that's one of the issues that they took up yeah and certainly very important for OSHA. Um, you know, we get into the um, later, we get into the national emphasis program on heat, but the National Weather Service, you know, chart is one of the, the you know, one of the basis that OSHA uses in its national emphasis program for conducting inspections. Um, so there was definitely sort of a cause for concern uh, when its scientific, you know, credibility was, was brought into question. Right. Whereas other regulatory paradigms don't, like California's, for instance. The other issue that they addressed is, is the question of whether or not they're exists a feasible means to abate the alleged hazard. And by feasible, there the courts have always parsed that out into technically feasible or technologically feasible and economically feasible. And uh, and so OSHA would have been required to present evidence that there was some some technical and economically feasible means of addressing what it alleged to be a general duty clause hazard for excessive heat. So then then the case after the ALJ vacates these citations, it goes up to the review commission to review, and they've they just issued their decision recently. That's right. They consolidated four of the five cases uh, and vacated all four citations. You know, the sort of the key point of disagreement between the review commission and the ALJ is that the commission found that the secretary did prove the existence of a hazard, but Monash they they ended up agreeing with the ALJ with respect to the uh, the feasible and effective means of abatement. Right. What they didn't say was that OSHA had established that there was a, a hazard by use of the National Weather Service chart. What they said was, well, when you look at all the expert testimony, the experts didn't rely solely on the NWS chart. They had their own testimonial evidence that the uh, environmental exposure for these letter carriers did constitute, in their professional opinion, their expert opinion, did constitute excessive heat on those particular circumstances. So, so that it, that it wouldn't be necessary to rely on the National Weather Service methodology for determining what would and would not qualify as excessive heat. So that that part gets uh, sent aside, and that that original premise used by the administrative law judge is no longer sound law, and that's a a, a sort of radical departure from the ALJ's decision, which which many people had relied on for a while. Then then there comes the question, as you say, Taylor, about. So, so the agency says, yeah, we think that there was testimonial evidence sufficient to show that there was an excessive heat hazard. Now we address the question of whether or not there was a feasible means of abatement, technical feasibility and economic feasibility. Just to go quickly back to, to hazard. Um, so the, the secretary must prove a significant risk or meaningful possibility that the workplace conditions uh, would harm employees. And then to prove this, uh, the secretary must show environmental and then metabolic heat conditions, uh, which subjected the carriers to significant risk uh, of experiencing a heat-related illness or injury. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into why most people in a given set of circumstances don't feel the uh, effects of heat stress, and then some people do. And and the heat, the temperature itself is one of many, many factors. Uh, the, the humidity or the heat index the uh, acclimatization of the worker to working in heat, the amount of work being performed, clothing, uh, dehydration or hydration, and general physical conditioning of a worker all are confounding variables when trying to determine what is an in uh, excess level of heat load for that worker, as well as, of course, time, which I forgot, uh, the time of exposure. 
or duration of exposure. You know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, with respect to the National Weather Service chart, you know, uh, that the Review Commission finds that OSHA experts consulted the chart, but did not exclusively rely on it. It was kind of cut under one of the ALJ's, you know, key points. Um, and then we end up concluding, the Review Commission does, that the witnesses did support a finding. Uh, that environmental and, and metabolic key conditions were present, um, that, that were present, were hazardous. So, so that, you know, sort of first box of the general duty clause, then um, the review commission says that the secretary met the burden there. Yeah, based on witness, expert witness testimony. So then they, they have to address the question of feasibility. Uh, the agency tried to establish that there were many means of abating the hazard, including training uh, workers and supervisors uh, but then they listed a, a catalog of other means by which the Postal Service could have abated the hazard of excessive heat exposure. That's right. And so eventually the secretary, um, the, the review commission finds that the secretary did not establish this this economic feasibility threshold, you know, sort of rejected uh, OSHA's reliance on the Postal Service's cost estimates um, because estimates are not reflective of proposed abatement measures. There was also a problem with you know, the Postal Service putting on this evidence that it was facing a looming financial crisis, um, you know, OSHA starts to get into these arguments, uh, essentially saying that because the Postal Service is a quasi-government agency, it's it's too big to fail. Um, but the Review Commission didn't didn't agree with that point. Right. And Taylor, a part of that, it's important to understand what some of the proposed abatement methods were that OSHA was, was suggesting that the Postal Service undertake. Uh, one, for example, would have been implementing breaks, periodic breaks instead of five-minute breaks, maybe expanding them to 15-minute breaks. One might have uh, been that they hire more letter carriers and shorten the routes, thereby shortening the exposure time. Uh, another was air-conditioned vehicles for every letter carrier. Uh, right now, all or almost all of the letter carrier, I should say almost all of the letter carrier vehicles are open vehicles so that letter carriers can come in and out of the vehicle quickly, which would shorten their overall shift theoretically. Uh, and that the number of times, the frequency with which, and the duration of which the door has to be open would render air conditioning theoretically uh, ineffective to cooling the interior of the cabin anyways. Uh, so there, there were a lot of proposals that OSHA came up with, and there were a lot of logistical reasons that the Postal Service uh, explained why these wouldn't work. They started with an explanation of the process that uh, the mail goes through when it arrives at a station gets sorted and then collected by the carrier and order, put in order of his uh, route. And then he goes on his route or she goes on her route uh, and, and does the delivery. And they pointed out that a lot of the proposed changes that OSHA was suggesting as a, or ordering as abatement were infeasible because the time it takes for that mail to go through that process would have been disrupted uh, and that the disruption is a multiplier as you go down the line in that process. So, so the a, a small change to the carefully orchestrated process for how mail gets uh, delivered, routed, uh, distributed, and then sorted and then delivered uh, would have what they referred to as a bullwhip effect down at the end of the line that a few minutes here and there uh, periodically would result in 15, 20, 30 minutes or hours longer uh, on every letter carrier's route. Uh, and again, the bullwhip effect theoretically would apply when you look at the large size of the fleet, a small change to a vehicle would lead to a large cost impact across the entire fleet. This was a nationwide abatement. 
but at any rate, there are logistical problems like the one I described with the vehicles where you, you simply can't air condition them, air condition them, and then leave the door open and closed constantly as a letter carrier entered and exit sufficient to deliver the mail. And there's two, at least two types of letter carrier, one who's getting in and out of his vehicle to deliver door to door. And then one on like, for example, rural routes where they drive up to the mailbox and their window is always open so that they can just reach out and put mail in the mailbox and air conditioning is an insufficient uh, sort of abatement in that kind of context. So a lot of logistical problems that the Postal Service put tremendous amount of evidence into debunking uh, OSHA's suggestions. Ultimately, as you say, Taylor, it came to the question uh, when you look at large scale uh, abatements like air conditioning of vehicles as to whether the U.S. Postal Service had enough money to do so across its nationwide fleet and pointed to the fact that it, as we speak, the Postal Service is running at a loss and that large scale costly abatements like the ones OSHA was proposing would exacerbate those costs to the point where it may jeopardize the survivability of the Postal Service. Interestingly, OSHA's response was that the Postal Service is too big to fail. Congress is obliged to financially backstop the Postal Service, and so it couldn't fail, uh, something that the Review Commission, uh, as an argument, rejected. So it's a little bit on the economic feasibility. Um, also, just real quick on the effective means of abatement. Um, one of the things that the Review Commission looked at was the Postal Service's existing uh, emergency response plans and monitoring um, and actually found that those the measures that OSHA was suggesting um, with respect to those would not materially uh, reduce the hazard beyond what the Postal Service already had in place. Um, so that was one you know, interesting finding as well in terms of the effective means of abatement. Right. Everything down to the training requirements that OSHA had ordered, they, they found that in that case, the training would not have materially affected uh, safety and that there was a training program. There was one instance where a manager had not been trained, uh, but overall, the Postal Service had a training program and any changes to it, OSHA couldn't establish that that would have had uh, an abatement-like uh, effect. So. So the enormous amount of discussion on every single one of OSHA's suggestions, and ultimately the Review Commission found that there wasn't uh, sufficient support for evidentiary support for it, or that they were uh, there were good arg countervailing arguments by the Postal Service as to why they weren't uh, feasible. Taylor, there uh, was one interesting footnote in the in the opinion. Yeah, yeah. So a footnote by Commissioner Lehow um, stating that. You know, the, just this term excessive heat is vague um, and that the lack of clarity makes it difficult for employers to know uh, what heat conditions, you know, moving forward, the secretary will, will treat as as excessive heat. So, I, you know, I think essentially saying that, you know, that this is what excessive heat looked like in this particular instance, uh, but that moving forward is still a little bit unclear uh, for the employer community. Right. I think what Commissioner Leal was saying was that this is the, that when you look at the specifics of this testimonial evidence based on the circumstances in those five cities, uh, those five cases, that there was, uh, that the agency had established that excessive heat was present. OSHA would have to present that particularized evidentiary basis for asserting that there was excessive heat in each case, because that's required under the general duty clause. Given that it's not generally recognized as to what is and is not excessive heat, uh, in light of all the confounding factors, like, like hydration, conditioning, acclimatization, et cetera. And, and the workload itself. And so so that that now presents the state of the law with respect to use of the general duty clause in heat cases, heat stress cases. Uh, the commissioner did note in that same footnote that 
she was aware that OSHA had announced its intent to engage in rulemaking. So it's perhaps possible that one day very soon, we will have a brand new OSHA standard that is specific to heat stress. And uh, indeed, they've, they've stated their intention for a number of years now, and there are many who believe that the, that the finalization of the rulemaking is now more imminent than it ever has been. In the meantime, OSHA has a national emphasis program. That's right. Um, so National Emphasis Program for Outdoor and Indoor Heat-Related uh, Hazards. This has been in effect since April 8th of 2022 and will continue um, for at least uh, you know the next two years until April of 2025. Various elements to this National Emphasis Program, um, including you know, targeting high-risk industries, um, setting up neutral and objective selection criteria for conducting inspections, um, and a few more monitors as well. Yeah, it, it describes how OSHA should select facilities to conduct a heat stress or um, inspection. And it points to the 70 odd industries that it considers to be uh, high risk. And as you pointed out, construction and agriculture, clearly. Uh, but it also points to the use of complaints, site-specific targeting, uh, and fatalities or catastrophes-based inspections uh, to tie in to their national emphasis program on heat as well. And on those occasions to conduct uh, heat-related inquiries with respect to their national emphasis program uh, at that establishment that they may have been brought into for for associated or other reasons. Right, and then you know pre-planned inspections of these high-risk industries, as well as um, when a heat priority day, which is when the heat index is expected to be 80 degrees or higher, or when the National Weather Service has announced a heat warning or advisory for that local area, um, sort of you know inspections triggered um, based on those conditions. Yeah. And some of the questions you can expect out of a national emphasis program based inquiry by the inspector would be uh, to take a look at your, your OSHA 300 and to see what incidents you may have had with respect to a possible uh, introduction of heat, uh, heat as an environmental stressor. Uh, they'll, they'll probably ask about training programs uh, and they'll ask about what protocols are being put into place to manage heat stress on high heat days, for example, breaks, the availability, the close proximity of water and shade for breaks. Um, and, and I think that those will be the bases on which OSHA will determine whether or not to issue citations uh, when conducting national emphasis program-based uh, inquiries in its inspections. Uh, you may also see their, their letters uh, of inquiry ask those same questions to supply us data relating to your Form 300 or training or your protocols, if you have written protocols. So keep an eye out for that. No, just a real quick update on the federal heat stress standard uh, that we wanted to give. Um, so really, the update at this point is is that we're just it's, you know, still in a holding pattern. You know, no decisions have been made by the agency on on either the content or the timing for proposed rule. Uh, but there is an upcoming uh, Sabrifa review um, uh, that that should happen sometime this year. And then I, I think seven states uh, petitioned OSHA for an emergency heat danger rule in, in February of 2023. But a lot of just, you know, kind of waiting at this point as to what could be, um, you know, in this in this rule. Right. So we got about a minute left, Taylor. Let's talk about what employers should do in light of this recent and incredibly important review commission decision. I think the first thing to do is to take a look at each company should take a look at its own protocols for addressing uh, high heat days. What, what is their um, what is their plan of action, and is it written? And does it start with a hazard assessment? 
Absolutely. And then acclimatization programs for, for employees who are new to working in these warm environments, making sure that you're sort of slowly ramping them up. Um, I think this is certainly one of the areas where we see the most heat-related you know, in- injuries and illnesses with these new employees. Right. And to consider changing their shift times on high heat days uh, is something that we've seen. We, we did an OSHA 3030 program where we, we brought in a safety and health professional who, who works in construction on the water on, on uh, construction uh, docks and uh, floating uh, platforms. And they, on high heat days, start uh, super early so that they can wrap up before the hottest hours of the day. Uh, another thing that I think OSHA is going to be looking for during its inspections. Absolutely. And then as to when these inspections might occur, as we mentioned, um, you know, with respect to the National Emphasis Program, you know, certainly expect increased inspections on days when the heat index is above 80 degrees. Right. Finally, if uh, any employer is faced with a general duty clause citation or even an inspection, uh, then I think that it's important to examine what OSHA's ordering as an abatement, and I should say proposing as an abatement, uh, because uh, there is going to be a challenge for the agency up until a rule is promulgated and in effect under the general duty clause in establishing whether or not those proposed abatements are technically and economically feasible a challenge that will continue to uh, require both the agency and employers to carefully examine uh, that same question every time there's an inspection or citation. But really the best way to address it is is at the inspection stage when answering uh, inspector questions. Well, Taylor, that's that's a wrap. 30 minutes uh, of another OSHA 3030 episode. Thank you, Taylor, for joining us. For those of you participating, you'll find all of our prior programs, including Uh, several on the general duty clause and quite a few on heat stress on our library at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Check them out. And again, remember when you get an invitation for the next OSHA 3030, please, please forward it on to three people within your organization and at other organizations in the office of general counsel for a corporation or a safety and health professional who's responsible for compliance with occupational safety and health law. With that said, uh, between now and when we see you again next month, please stay in touch with us through LinkedIn. If you're not LinkedIn to Taylor and me, please make sure you do so. Keller and Heckman's Workplace Safety and Health Law Practice has another LinkedIn page, so link into that as well. Uh, And then subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform uh, and check us out on YouTube for any episodes you might miss or you want to forward on to a colleague. Let them know about it by forwarding on the YouTube link, and you can do so by searching on either OSHA 3030 or Monish Rath. Both of them will get you to our podcast or our YouTube uh, episodes. Our next episode, April 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And when you get that invitation, please forward it on. We will look forward to seeing you then. Our sister programs, the Tosca 3030 and Reach 3030 are scheduled for April 12th, 2023. Uh, If your organization is responsible for compliance under those uh, regulatory schema, please, please make sure you check out those programs. Well, that's it for this month's OSHA 3030. On behalf of Keller and Heckman, my colleague Taylor Johnson and myself, I want to thank all of you for participating. And we look forward to seeing you again next month at the next episode of the OSHA 3030. And until then, stay safe. 